Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's great to be here. I, I'm, I'm honored uh, to, be, to be asked back. Uh, Merchant Center and uh, the Furnace Award were a uh, big boost to the initial phases of my career, and uh, it's, uh, it's great to come back and, uh, and uh, visit old friends, people I've known for uh, a long time. Uh, institutions like this, like the Mershon Center, have been instrumental in keeping you know, security studies alive for the last 10 or 15 years. When the Cold War ended, a lot of people thought we should sort of close up shop and maybe retire. The world was going to be a very different place. The role of force was going to diminish. Uh, there were people, places like this, places like my own institution, who were a little skeptical that things would go so well. We hoped they would go so well, but we doubted that they would go so well. Uh, sadly, I think for all concerned, we turned out to be right. Okay, today I want to talk about European Union security and defense policy. Because this is a kind of a new thing uh, and a bit obscure in its way, I'm going to organize the discussion this way. I'm going to say a little bit about what this actually is. Uh, what, do, what does the Union have now that it did not have five years ago? Uh, why this is interesting, at least to me. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about what explains how we got to where we got. And in terms of possible explanations, uh, I'll lay out maybe four, not entirely distinct explanations. Uh, the one I'll talk the most about is a structural realist explanation that grows out of some uh, deductions from the unipolar moment combined with some deductions from realist IR theory. Uh, but other arguments are kind of European Union institutional ideology, uh, European mid to low politics, particularly in Britain, and then a favorite argument in some quarters of the United States, uh, the evil France uh, uh, <laughs> argument. <laughs> it's all those evil French. I guess Richard Pearl has, in a new book has named France and Saudi Arabia as two enemies of the United States. Uh, those of us who like to visit Paris, maybe we should go now because they're not going to let us go anymore. Uh, and then I'll, maybe I'll say a little bit about ESDP's trajectory and what its implications are for, uh, uh, for transatlantic relations. And this is Pearl's a funny guy. I mean, one of his more amusing statements was that the most boring topic in the, on the conference agenda for the last two years has been sort of you know, transatlantic relations, right? and particularly things that have to do with the European Union or NATO. I don't know what it, you know, it really is the most boring topic. Uh, maybe that explains why, why, why I got into it. But I, I will try and talk a little bit about the implications of, of this for transatlantic relations, which for most people means it's come to mean you know, how healthy is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which in some sense in this whole story is a competitor with the European Union security and defense policy. Uh, substantively, I rely on a variety of source material, uh, none of it gathered in a particularly rigorous way. Uh, I did, I spent almost a year in, in, in Brussels uh, at, a, at a new center that's sponsored by the German Marshall Fund in the United States. I had reasonably good access to European Union security and foreign policy officials, both in the national delegations and in the union itself. Uh, also had a lot of informal conversations with people, interviews in the cap in some of the capitals of big countries and small. Most of these, these interviews, I, I tried to ask the same set of questions, but I certainly wasn't looking for anything that I could manipulate statistically. Uh, I've been helped by the work of a lot of other people because there is a small 
coterie of people who study transatlantic security relations in all its glory uh, for the last decade or or two. And then I was one of the reasons I got into this was because you know back in the day in the Cold War days, NATO Warsaw Pact competition was one of my you know, core interests, and it's essentially what my second book was about. So I had some basis to start from. Okay, European Union security defense policy. What is it? What is it for Tim? European security defense policy, often abbreviated ESDP, refers specifically to an effort by the European Union to develop the ability to conceive, plan, and execute military operations in support of European Union determined political objectives, which means ostensibly in support of what the Union calls the common foreign and security policy. Now, the planning objective in terms of the capabilities desired are the so-called Petersburg tasks, and these were so named after a city where another now virtually moribund security organization, the Western European Union, first conceived them in 1992. Right? And these tasks are enshrined in uh, uh, the uh, Treaty of Nice, which is the most recent European Union treaty. And I'm going to just put up the, uh, the, uh, the language. <coughs> this is from... Title V of the consolidated version of the Treaty on European Union, the Treaty of Nice, which is now in force, relatively recent treaty. And this is basically, is this focus in any way? Huh? Is that a little better? Yeah. Uh, these are the Petersburg tasks, which originated with the Western European in 1992 and since have been absorbed by the European Union and are enshrined in the Treaty of Nice. So this is the, you know, after 10 or 12 years of thinking about this, this is the objective for, for which this military planning, if you will, is oriented. Uh, humanitarian and rescue tasks, peacekeeping tasks, and tasks of combat forces and crisis management, including peacemaking. Now, the nice thing about this is there's something in it for everybody. Right. The, 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 the last two objectives actually provide a, a rationale for a fairly open-ended and pretty ferocious capability as an objective, whereas the early ones sound rather anodyne. <coughs> and you know, buried in here is, you know, this, it, 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 to some extent, are some of the origins of the on-again, off-again, friendly dispute and or cooperative effort between the European Union and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The other thing you might say is that, you know, we should come clear in the talk, is that it was these first few sets of tasks, particularly peacekeeping, right, that was probably one of the key impetuses to this. It was the inability of the European Union to do anything on its own, particularly in the Balkan Wars in the mid-90s, was a big impetus uh, to this project. So I, I won't keep uh, that up for very much longer. Uh, now, the second aspect of all this, I'll, I'll have to turn the machine back on, is at least on paper, the union is very adamant about saying uh, that this is meant to be an autonomous capability. On paper, they say this is meant to be an autonomous capability. And you know, if you go to the European Union website, which is full of information but not very nicely structured, uh, from the part that deals with the European Union military structures, says the Union has in this respect highlighted its determination to develop an autonomous capacity to take decisions. So 
That's clause one. Autonomous capacity to take decisions. And here's clause two. And where NATO as a whole is not engaged to launch and conduct EU-led military operations in response to international crises. So already, on the one hand, you see European Union has have the capability to do these things, right? Has to have the capability to do it autonomously, but somehow NATO gets the right of first refusal. So already, you're sort of seeing some of the important tensions in this issue space. Uh, and then it goes on, for that purpose, member, member states have decided uh, to develop more effective military capabilities. This process, without unnecessary duplication, does not involve the establishment of a European army, which would seem like a complete contradiction, right? And it's, it's, these, it's these kinds of, you know, amusing little tensions, you know, grown people uh, sort of trafficking and uh, <coughs> formally <laughs> In this kind of contradictory language and contradictory policies has sort of attracted me to this issue. I mean, it's just, you know, everywhere you go, there's something funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I'll, I'll come back to it. Now, this ability is not aimed at defense. I mean, the Union is quite clear in saying that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization is still the principal classical defense organization in Europe. The Union has no pretensions right, to replace NATO as the classical defender of Europe. As if there were an attack from without, if there were a new if Russia were to somehow re you know, emerge from its, from its trough and become a great power and become ferocious somehow, that would be NATO's business. That's still the expectation. It's these Petersburg paths. It's, it's stabilizing the periphery an ever-growing forever broadening periphery, if you will, that is the, uh, is the main EU project. And again, this also has to do with, with NATO's, uh, uh, NATO's prerogatives. Right? And every time you see uh, any inclinations in the Union to begin to, to edge up to this prerogative, for example, in the negotiations on the new European Union Constitution and the Convention, where there's been discussion of adding a so-called solidarity clause where everybody in the union would agree that if one of them were attacked, they would come to the other's defense, you get this argument. Well, wait a second, that's not really, that shouldn't really be here. That's really, in, that's really, that's really NATO's business. But this initiative is quite new, as is the union itself, as opposed to the, uh, you know, the European economic community. This, you know, the, the first union treaty of Maastricht is 1992. The 1992 treaty... Uh, proposed a common foreign security policy and talked about a security policy and ultimately a common defense policy. They even have this language in the Maastricht Treaty that ultimately this all of this planning could lead to a common defense policy, which is to say ultimately in the future it could lead to, a, to, to, to essentially competing with NATO for the defense mission. Uh, in the Amsterdam Treaty of 1997, the Petersburg tasks were brought in to the treaty for the first time. Right? And in those, you know, in those first two treaties, there was discussion that this other old organization, the Western European Union, which actually antedates NATO, would be the vehicle for all this defense activity, but no longer. Right? By the Nice Treaty, the Western European Union drops out. Several Western European Union institutions are brought into the European Union. The only thing from the Western European Union not yet brought into the European Union that everyone thought would be brought in is the Western European Union's Article 5, which is the same as NATO's Article 5, which is the agreement to actually come to one another's defense. Right? That's hanging fire. Right? But again, you know, this is 
funny, you know, European Union moves forward incrementally. Somehow, coincidentally, Javier Solana, who's the, essentially the, the voice of the common foreign security policy for the European Union, is also the Secretary General of the Western European Union. So, you know, uh, if, you, if you wanted to sort of follow the trail of institutional connections and absorptions and, and, and treaties, you know, uh, somebody could stand back and say, you know, these people are actually much farther along than they say they are, you know, juridically, because of the connections among some of these institutions and commitments. Okay, so now, you get the point too. What do we have now at this moment that we didn't have five years ago? You know, five, six years ago, people said, well, this is all on paper. There's nothing, there's no real there there. Right? This is a paper project. Right? Well, it may still be a paper project, but it's a little less than a paper project. Right? One, you know, five, six years ago, there was no single voice for the European Union Common Foreign Security Policy. There was nobody with the Javier Solana, the role that, that Javier Solana now has. By the way, if you hang around with European Union people, they have a tendency to use these shorthands so that rather than give this a name, they would call it the Solana role. I mean, they personalize these things, right? But it's the, it's the idea that there would be a single voice. Now, Henry Kissinger years ago says, well, who do I talk to if I want to call the European Union and ask him to do something or the European community? And the, there was no answer then, but there is an answer now. You call Javier, or Javier calls you usually first is what usually happens. Um, there's a political security committee. So essentially there's senior diplomats, people more or less, you know, between the ages of 45 and 50, right? Very, you know, young, energetic, smart people, right? Who are meeting at the European, in the European Union context, to, to discuss what's happening in the world and what it means for the Union from a security point of view, and to talk explicitly about political, military questions, right? This is new, right? And this meets, you know, they meet regularly, right? And these people are actually quite accessible. I got to interview probably four or five of them. And, uh, and they're, they're smart, interesting people. And I, I, you know, I think you can judge the importance of the thing by, you know, what kind of people are being sent to do it by the governments. And they're sending good ones, right? Very savvy people. Um, there's a military committee, right? Which essentially is the is, is 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 the committee of the chiefs of staff of all the European Union member states. When I was there, it was still the Union at 15, but now we're they're taking in 10 new 10 new members. Those four start military. People are not all in Brussels. In fact, they're never in Brussels except for you know a celebration from time to time. Uh, they essentially have a chairman. Their chairman is a four-star who's drawn from one of the, you know, a senior military commander who's drawn from one of the countries. And the first uh, commander was uh, was a Finn, actually. The first uh, 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 head of the military committee was a Finn, uh, Gustav Hagelin. I got lucky on this. He actually happened to have been an old friend of mine. When he was a colonel, he was a, a fellow at Harvard when I was a postdoc at Harvard. And we were, we were both interested in the Scandinavian security issues, which I worked on in my first book. And you know, I, I sort of stayed in touch with him. And then I lost contact with him. And then when I decided to do this project, I realized it was the same guy. And I called him up when I got there. Hey, Gustav, it's me. He says, come on over. Right? And so I, got, I got sort of lucky in this deal. He, he's gonna, he, his term is coming to an end. And a, an Italian officer, whose name escapes me, will, will, will replace him. For, working for that person is the so-called European Union military staff, right? which is a small staff, but nevertheless a real one of military people to provide high-level strategic guidance, political military kind of guidance, uh, to, the, uh, to the European Council. Uh, there is a force list, a goal, the Helsinki force goals. 
And the stated goal is the ability to get an expeditionary force of 60,000, largely, you know, peacekeeping, peace enforcement kinds of troops, uh, to uh, a complex uh, emergency after a period of six months. And so if you decided today, you'd get it there in six months, was hardly, you know, this is not the cavalry, this is the infantry coming to the rescue. Uh, but once it's there, to be able to sustain it for at least a year. So it's a, it's a fairly ambitious goal. Uh, this force was just declared operational, uh, whatever that means, because <laughs> in, in NATO, in the European Union, to say that you're going to do a thing and to set a date is to essentially not fail, right? You know, it's, it's going to be ready whether it is, at the time you said it was going to be ready, whether it's there, whether it isn't, because these things have a political force. Uh, this force is missing a lot of enablers. Uh, you know, these are the same enablers that you know, when we're wearing our NATO hats, we complain that the European allies don't have things like strategic lift, heavy airlift aircraft, sufficient sea lift, uh, some kinds of command and control and intelligence capabilities. Uh, the, the, these, these shortfalls have been identified, and there's you know, slow work afoot to try and rectify them. If you do a little drill, which I wasted an afternoon on once, uh, comparing the NATO's list of its shortfalls and the Union's list of its shortfalls, there's 80 or 90 percent commonality, and it's not a coincidence. And we'll come back to why it's not a coincidence later. One thing you should know, is, as every European will tell you, there is only one set of forces. So when you know, you won't find this force of 60,000 camped out. Right? This is a pool of forces from which the Union could draw. Some of these forces are the same forces from which NATO would draw for, for, for NATO problems are identified as a NATO pro problem. They're the same forces that the countries would draw on if the countries had problems of their own. So it's not like there's a, a force camped out somewhere with an EU hat on it or with a NATO hat or some other hat, right? It, all the countries, they have one, essentially one set of forces. And the question is doing the planning to make them available for these various contingencies and making sure that they reach a certain readiness level. Uh, often lost sight of in this in this discussion, and not exactly an EU project, but related to it, uh, has been the development since 1995 of, uh, of operational headquarters in several of the key European countries that would allow them to run combined arms, all arms, national missions at a distance. Right? This started with the British in 1995 as a headquarter, I can't remember the acronym, but the headquarters of a place called Northwood followed shortly after by the French, who are always are, are, are sort of playing number two to the British, always playing catch-up militarily, and they know it. It's not, this is one of the things where the French are completely candid. They know that the British are the number one military power in Europe. They're the number two military power, and they're playing catch-up, but they are playing. Right? The Germans followed shortly thereafter, and they're a little cagey about it because uh, this is the first time they've had anything that looks like a national operational military headquarters since the Second World War and largely it's been running peacekeeping operations. And then there's some kind of headquarters in Italy and some kind of headquarters in Greece. And if you look at European Union discussions about how European Union missions would be managed, there's always now two theories about how you would manage the mission. The dominant theory is the one that NATO likes, which is the, which is the Union goes to NATO and basically says there's this problem that needs a solution. You, NATO, should do this. And NATO would say, well, we don't really want to do this, but you can do it. And now you can take all these NATO assets and use these NATO assets to do it with. Very convoluted. But that's method one and the preferred NATO method, the preferred method of many European states for whom NATO comes first in the security realm. But the method number two is that the Union would deputize one of these European national headquarters 
deputize, multinationalize, and use one of these headquarters to run the operation. The Brits would be the best at it at this point. The French and the Germans would be distinct second best. But everybody's they're scrambling, right? They're 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 they're, they're playing catch up. Uh, the modalities by which NATO assets would be made available to the European Union have been discussed for many years. For obscure reasons, they're called Berlin Plus. So when you hear people say Berlin Plus, what they're referring to is these modalities. Uh, and negotiations hung fire on a bunch of internal disputes inside NATO and the European Union and European Union and NATO members, particularly things that had to do with Turkey and Greece and Turkey's accession to the EU and the Turkish-Greece conflict. Uh, this has more or less been sorted out. Berlin Plus agreements started to uh, be uh, finalized, I think it was in uh, January, February of 2003. Uh, when you get the summaries of what's agreed, the summaries are somewhat vague. The most explicit thing is that if the Union wants to do an operation and NATO declines to do an operation, NATO's principal headquarters shape with hive office cell that would be used to plan and command the organization. That's, that's the preferred method. So already you can see some oddities here. We talked in the beginning about autonomous capabilities to do things as an objective, and these are enshrined in black and white. When you look at the practical modalities, the union has denied itself truly first-class autonomous capabilities to launch and run an operation. They have a second best set of ways to do it, but they've, de they've denied themselves the first best, in part out of deference to NATO. Uh, there's a bit of high concept uh, for the first time last year, uh, I think it was finalized in December, uh, the Union has a, a political military document, a strategy. And if you read, read this document and you read it next to the Bush strategy, you would find it tamer in tone, uh, less martial in terms of its reliance on military power. Uh, but in terms of its identification of the problems that might merit the application of military power, I think you'd find 60 or 70 percent commonality. Uh, particularly in terrorism and weapons of mass destruction proliferation, there's, there, there seems to be you know, there's complete agreement. The thing that the Europeans care more about that the Americans don't, uh, although NATO had to get into this business, is, is the stabilization of civil wars, dealing with peripheral conflicts. Right? Uh, particularly uh, civil wars around the, Europe, the, the periphery of Europe. And then finally, there's some actual missions. The European Union took over the police mission in Mas took over the, the security mission in Macedonia, which I think has since wound down. They took over the police side of, uh, of the mission in Bosnia. They've offered and probably will soon take over the mission that NATO now has in Bosnia. And it seems quite likely in the next several years that they'll get the Kosovo mission as well. Right? So uh, under U EU auspices, you will see these, the, most of the peripheral security missions that were launched in the mid-90s under NATO's flag will migrate to a European Union flag. So there's things happening. They're not gigantic things, but, but it, it, compared to where they were, it's quite a lot. Okay, now, so what's, why is this interesting? Well, the European Union is not a country, it's not an empire, not exactly clear what it is. I, I'm, I'm not going to speculate. But collectively, it's quite rich, right? relative to the United States and relative to the rest of the world. And contrary to you know, the way the Americans talk about Euro Europeans, Europeans are actually quite powerful militarily, not relative to us, just relative to anybody else. Right? 
this is the biggest concentration of high-end military power in the world today. From our point of view, the American military planning point of view, we sort of say, yeah, there's not much there, not at our level, uh, not easy to use. But if you compare what they do relative to almost anybody else, compare what they can build in terms by way of military machinery compared to everybody else, look at the skills compared to anybody else, these are some of the most formidable military forces in the world today, aside from us. And they're not very formidable compared to ours, but they are formidable compared to others, and it's a nice addition. Uh, these are globally, internationally oriented countries, not only in terms of, of trade, but in terms of tradition. Right? I mean, European unions, for, for example, Europeans pay a lot of attention to what happens in Africa. In fact, the Americans have figured this out. If you look at the Bush strategy statement, you'll find it you know, buried in deep into the strategy statement is a discussion of Africa. And early in the discussion of Africa is, or maybe late in it, it's a short discussion. It's, it's a, it's a, and, and maybe the Europeans could do this. I mean, this is one of the only positive references to the Europeans in the document. In fact, only one of the only references. Uh, I have another reason for doing this. Uh, you know, I've been trying to understand you know, the, the, the implications of the great concentration of power in American hands uh, since the Cold War ended, you know, what some called the unipolar moment. And uh, I didn't think the unipolar moment would last very long when it started. Uh, and clearly the moment has not passed, so I, you know, maybe it's the unipolar hour or day or, or whatever. Uh, but I, I've been trying to understand the implications of it. And you know, for years I had sort of looked at things from the inside out. I looked at the world through American eyes. But I decided that it would be good to look at American power through the eyes of, an, of other consequential powers. And this particular set of consequential powers attracted me for some of the reasons I've already said, but also because I, you know, I think I, I, I confess I, I had some um, background uh, in this area. And then there's just the, you know, the, the humor that's buried in it, which I pointed to before. In other words, that here's the European Union, rather secure part of the world these days. Uh, NATO found its way in the mid-90s, began solving problems, new problems that Europeans had identified. Uh, Americans seemed committed to staying on the continent. NATO's a rather successful military organization. There's no great stampede out of it. Right? So why, given that there's a pretty successful, imposing security provider there in Europe, why start noodling around with this other thing? And that's the question. So let's go to the question. You know, what are some of the explanations for where this other thing uh, comes from? Well, let's make some observations about unipolarity and how it might work. All right. One, just the facts of the case. If you know, I use as a shorthand, I use William Wilford's article where he sort of tries to count power. Uh, using his, uh, his article, it would have taken the gross domestic products of three of the greater powers in the world to equal that of the United States in 1997. In other words, if you were just trying to put, assemble a balance of power vis-a-vis -vis the Americans, you needed at least three states to do it, and that makes the, the rather heroic assumption that you know, power represented by GDP is somehow entirely additive, which we know not, is, not, is, not, is not true in practice. Uh, the defense spending figures are even more skewed. You know, every year you'll get at least one article in the newspaper telling you that we spend more than the next 8, 9, 10, 12, whatever countries. Uh, my favorite factoid now is if you look at what the Americans intend to invest in military research and development next year, it probably equals or exceeds the com combined defense budgets of France and Germany or British and Germany. 
So we spend dreaming up new ways, dreaming up new ways to wage war equals what two of the four principal European military powers spend every year on everything that has to do with waging war. This is an this, this is enormous difference, enormous difference. So what do you expect under these circumstances? Well, I went, you know, losing my imagination in my old age, I went and started culling little articles about, you know, by, by realists that had been written since the 1990s and stealing little statements they had made. So what are the things that we could expect? One, the greatest power can be expected to exploit this opportunity to organize international politics to suit its interests, however it defines them, right? And in particular, you should expect a power with this advantage to try and lock in this advantage. And I would say this is, if anything, this is probably a John Mearsheimer kind of insight about offensive realism, right? An offensive realist kind of insight. Second, the greatest power does not perceive many constraints on its action, particularly a grave risk of an opposing coalition. Right? And I've already said why. It's just very hard for opposing coalitions to form. It's very unwieldy in every sense right? because of this great concentration in the United States, which is a fact given by providence or nature or faith, whatever. Uh, the greatest power can be capricious relative to its allies, its dependencies, and its neighbors. These allies are not critical to its success, and if they are unhappy with the action, they don't really have anywhere else to go, because there isn't another pole out there. So what do you expect other consequential powers to do? You know, powers the size of Japan or France or Britain, China? Well, we have the usual litany of realist answers, balancing, buck-passing, bandwagoning. Balancing is very difficult. Uh, buck-passing isn't such a bad thing, although if you, you might have to pass the buck for a very long time to hope that somehow, some way, uh, the Americans are going to be weakened by their various adventures. Uh, bandwagoning is not uncommon, but it is uncomfortable. Uh, it does happen. Sometimes it happens by small states who are just interested in being sure that they're the last lunch for the great power or the non-lunch for the great power, uh, sometimes by medium powers who are trying to get something from the great power's table. Right? Happens for both of these reasons. Now, prediction is hard. Right? I mean, given these kind, given what we can figure out about what I've been able to figure out realism, prediction is hard. Right? It seems to me we, you know, among powers the size of the Europeans, you can imagine that you might expect to see some bandwagoning bandwagoning pretty likely, but at the same time, if you look at the historical scheme of things, balancing tends to happen sort of sooner or later, right? So my own feeling about this, my own prediction here, which is it's unfair because it's really backed out of my observations, but it seems to me it's reasonable to suggest that you're going to see a lot of bandwagon, but it's the uncomfortable bandwagon. The consequential states that bandwagon are going to be looking for ways to ensure themselves against the worst outcome looking for ways to be sure that they can get off the wagon if they have to get off the wagon. Right? Which is a kind of balancing, but not exactly. For those of you who have ever read Albert Hirschman's book, Exit, Voice, and Loyalty, I think of it in that way. You know, it's exit optioning. Right? Countries that have decided it's in their interest to bandwagon with the greatest power, but they have some capability, they're going to try and have a way out, a back door, a side door, off the wagon. <coughs> 
And I think if you look at this project, this ESDP project, look at when it occurred and why it occurred, I think you can trace it back to these problems of dealing with the United States in its grandness. Right? Now, I'm going to come back to some of that evidence in a second, but let me just skate briefly through the other explanations and tell you why I think they're... Uh, you can't rule them out, but I, I think that they're, they're weaker. The, the common explanation when you ask questions among Europeans about why this is all happening is they give answers which I abbreviate. I call it EU-ism. And you'll get answers like uh, European Union is now a big economy. Because it's a big economy that trades globally, it has to have a foreign policy. Because it has a foreign policy, it has to have a defense policy. This little bit of defense business we're doing, it's just kind of rounding out the project. Right? So it's a kind of paper rounding out. Right? makes us feel good about ourselves. In the fullness of time, maybe it means something. But aside from that, it's really not very important. Some Europeans will also point to a very long history of European discussions about distinctly European defense organizations going back to the 1950s. Right? That defense and security, trying to fix it so that Europe would not have a new fight among itself, has always been sort of on a, you know, implicated in the European Community Project and the European Union Project. Some people will point to the fact that common for, the common foreign and security policy the idea that there should be a European Union common foreign and security policy uh, is quite popular in public opinion polls across Europe. Uh, if you look at the Eurobarometer poll, you can look at any of them, but I happen to have looked at the Spring 02 one, 64% of respondents were supported a common foreign policy. 64% of Europeans supported a common foreign policy. Uh, last year's German Marshall Fund Chicago Council Foreign Relations poll, which that was the O2 poll. I think in O3 they, they they tried this once together and then they had a divorce. But the one year that they did it together suggested that two thirds of the respondents thought that the European Union should become a superpower. Striking. Right? I mean, we think of this as sort of this Pacific, Pacific non-strategic part of the world. Right? Two thirds of respondents thought the EU should become a superpower. And about half of those, which means about one third of all respondents. We're willing to spend more on defense for the purpose of making the European Union a superpower. Now, it's not easy to get Europeans to, to say anything positive about increasing defense spending. In fact, if you ask the question cold, only about 20% will say they're willing to increase defense spending. If you ask the European Union superpower question first, and then ask the defense spending question, you can get it up to a third. You can increase, you can increase people's inclination to support defense spending by 50% by attaching defense spending to the European Union. And everybody in Europe knows this. European political figures know this. People in the Union know it. Uh, NATO people know it. Right? And this alone explains some, you know, may explain some of what's happening you know, in European Union defense ministries because there's at least a viable argument that the real purpose of ESDP is just to find a way to couch NATO's force goals in European Union terms to try and extract that extra 50% of support to pay for it. Right? This argument, I'm not making this argument up, it, 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 it jumps out at you if, you, if you if you look at the situation for a while. Now, the, the one problem with sort of the, 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 the EU-ism kind of argument is the timing. 
you don't really see all the progress that I talk about. That I talked about all the the, the, the the little bits of business that I talk about as being things that that, uh, that represent some steps in the direction of real capability. It, it all comes well after the Union project is launched. Right? It doesn't come until really 98 or 99. It's rather late. And it spikes. In other words, you're going along with all the European Union kind of institutional arguments are there. You're going along, going along. There's language. There's meetings. Not much happens. Right? Stuff starts to happen after 98 and 99. And it happens largely, at least we, we can see that the, the primary impetus is an agreement, a, a sudden, not sudden, but a, a somewhat unexpected agreement between, between Britain and France that something should happen. Because the Brits move. In, in late 1998, and there's a meeting between the British and French defense ministers at Saint Malo, which has a kind of legendary part. There's a legend now, legendary part of, of, of this story. Different argument: uh, European Union and national low politics, or low European Union politics. I, I, I can't figure out the right category. But some will tell you that this movement in late 98 and early 99 is to, is to be explained by. Tony Blair specifically, and the fact that Blair himself was basically a pro-EU guy, and he confronted a society, an elite, that wouldn't play in what, what was then the main EU project, which was the currency, which was the euro. Right? So Blair is, in, in this part of the story, you'll get this a lot from Brits, Blair is searching around for a way that Britain can play a major role in the European Union, because right? it can't play a role in the currency. So what's the coin that Britain brings to the table? Everybody agrees Britain is the preeminent military power in Europe, the most confident military power in Europe. Right? So some say that this was really all just about Blair you know, circuitously following this path towards uh, greater uh, EU involvement for Britain. Uh, now, this may be true, but uh, if it was, Blair didn't stick to it very long. As after launching this, in, this initial set of steps, in terms of his public rhetoric, he backed off talking about the Union as a military project and spent a lot of time trying to explain to the British people why this wasn't really very different, it wasn't a challenge for NATO, et cetera, et cetera. Evil France. This is an argument you often get from Europeans, actually. Right? It's, not, it's not just an American <coughs> argument. Uh, you know, if you ask people, well, what are, what, what, what are, why do the French, why are the French such strong supporters of this? And they have consistently been the strongest supporters. People say France is just trying to eject NATO from the continent, eject the United States from the continent, eject NATO from the continent. This is their plan to replace it. This is their scheme. Right? This is what they're up to. Right? Well, it may be that, this, that France would like to do this, but France can't do it without the support of the other principal European powers. In fact, most people will tell you, and I, I'm not sure. What I, how I feel about this at this point. Both people tell you that nothing much can happen on the security front within the European Union if Britain and France aren't in agreement. Essentially, you have four major military powers in the Union, Britain, France, Italy, and Germany. But Britain and France are, are the key, are the key, right? And if you don't have agreement there, you're not going to be able to do much, right? And the real story is the agreement. So let, let me just say a little bit about uh, the agreement, and then I'll stop because I see you looking at your watch, and I know you want to have some, some Q and A. And I think this will take us just far enough, and then we can go back into some other some other things. 
I'll put up one more slide when I'm done, just because I, it amuses me to put it up. Uh, we have a set of U.S. policies in the mid-90s, which from a European point of view could be summed up as, as failures on the one hand and heavy-handedness on the other. And both of them caused a lot of discomfort. Right? Uh, almost everybody I interviewed on this question and I, I conducted the interviews in a very general way and did, you know, tried to at least you know, hew to basic kosher laws of interviewing and, and not you know, sort of prime the pump. Uh, without very much prompting, uh, people would cite Europe's relative impotence during the collapse of Yugoslavia and the unwillingness of the Americans to get engaged right, as a key set of lessons. Uh, it basically shows that if the Americans don't, if the Americans don't feel like being there, they're not going to be there. Yeah. Doesn't matter to them one way or the other, really. Uh, so this is one source that says, well, maybe we better have some kind of capability ourselves. Um, same in Kosovo. The Kosovo may have mattered more because here you have the set of lessons coming out of Bosnia. There's a lot of noodling around and talking about it in Europe, but not much is done. Then, when the crisis spins up in Kosovo in '98, Europeans are talking among themselves. The Americans, you know, Bill Clinton is otherwise occupied, right? and the Europeans are saying, "Well, maybe we should do this. Right? Maybe we have to be able to take care of this." And the answer is, "The cupboard is still bare." So, 1995, you have the set of experiences that don't work out very well. 1998, you're still in the same same boat. It looks like the Americans are going to be a wall again. Now, in the end, the Americans weren't, but this three-year experience was not uh, a salutary one. Now, the flip side is uh, U.S. Uh, heavy-handedness. And here it's harder to get uh, a complete story. There's, a, there's an undercurrent of disquiet in Europe about how the United States ran the Kosovo War. And it's not easy to get people to be very specific about it. And it, it is as far as I've been able to figure out, the things that, that annoyed Europeans the most was, one, most of the key decisions about running the war were not, in fact, taken at shape. Right? The war was not run from shape, NATO's headquarters. The war was really run from UCOM, which is America's European military headquarters. So there's lots about the way the war was run that the Europeans feel like they really didn't have much say in or much knowledge about. During the war, the Americans were stingy about sharing intelligence data with the Allies. Uh, during the war, NATO, the, the North Atlantic Council, tried to exert a certain amount of political control over targets. And the amount of control they tried to exert was actually rather gentle. But the American military's version of the level of control that was generated is that the, is the Europeans were constantly trying to micromanage the war. The fact is, if you look at various histories of the war, there was at least as much micromanagement coming from Washington as there was coming from Brussels, and probably a lot more. I tried to get people to say something rude about the conduct of diplomacy at the Rambouillet negotiations. And there I actually would abandon all kosher laws of interviewing, because I really wanted to get people to say this, and uh, I couldn't. You know, people just wouldn't say rude things, even though it looked to me like something a bit funny happened. Uh, then there's uh, 
there's a there's some, there's some real bitterness in Europe about about the Afghan war, believe it or not. Uh, you know, after 9-1-1, you know, NATO basically said, you know, we're with you on this. You know, this is a threat of the kind we've always been talking about. NATO's with you 110%. What can we do? And the Americans sort of said, nah, not very much. Right. And the, 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 the NATO allies wanted to be in the Afghan war. And we basically told them, yeah, we don't really need you. you know, stay home. Send some AWACS airplanes to the United States. That'd be nice. Right? Otherwise, you will call you in the nature. Right? This left a very bad taste in, Europe, in, in, in the mouths of Europeans. Because basically, it conveyed, the, again, this, this impression. The Americans, they really just don't need us. Right? So, you know, we don't matter very much. And, I, and this is a... This is a uh, this is a, a, a difficult lesson for them. So I can say a few minutes about what I think the trajectory of this thing is. Okay, what 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 is what is the trajectory here? I, I think there's two things that are going to drive this in a kind of slow but steady direction. Uh, one is that uh, when the union starts a thing, it can't really undo a thing, right? I mean, this is where the institutional argument really does begin to carry some weight. I think. And so this is a thing that can't go backwards. It can go sideways. It can mill about smartly. It can go forward, you know, one step forward, two, you know, two steps forward, one step back, whatever. But this is this is not, you know, th there's some stickiness on the downside with this thing. So it's unlikely that it's going to go backwards. Uh, second, th the structural forces that I talked about, I think, are going to continue to work. And you see them, you know, if, once you begin looking for them, you see little bits and pieces of evidence uh, you know, every day, right? Uh, in spite of the ostensible falling out between the, you know, the French and the British over uh, over Iraq, the French and British just the other day announced a new cooperative military initiative to put together joint French-British military units to support the United Nations, to support ESDP, units with consider, you know, units that would have real capability. Right? So. You know the, the 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 project proceeds apace. The flip side is also true. You know, the Brit Britain and uh, France and, and, and Germany and, and, and Belgium and Luxembourg had this scheme to build a somewhat bigger headquarters in Brussels for the European Union. It wasn't going to be very big. This sent you know, U.S. You know, NATO officials into like paroxysms. Right? They just a complete panic. Nick Burns called it the worst crisis that's afflicted NATO. And, you know, typical hyperbole, right? But we fought tooth and nail to, to make sure this thing didn't happen, right? Because the United States, acting through NATO, is going to fight very hard to maintain its control over uh, the military institutions uh, in Europe. And, but the, the irony is, is that you know, if you talk to Europeans, the harder the Americans press against it, the more value it seems to have to them, right? And so when I, you know, my net net here is when I, when I, you know, when I talked to, in a way, my, some of the more, most illuminating conversations I had was with those European diplomats from European states that are the most strongly pro-NATO and the most strongly pro-American, right? And so you, so you ask them questions like, well, given your country's policies, why do you, you know, why do you support this ESDP business? I mean, why are you doing anything here? I mean, this, this is this is deviation. Right? And you know they'll give you the European Union story, and then you argue with them for a while. And finally, if you back them into a corner, they'll say, "Look, we want options. We need options. NATO can't be the only option." And this from countries that are 
you know, sort of the ones that were like this with George Bush in the Iraq War. Right? So my bottom line here is that, is that this thing is gonna is gonna move forward. And some of the questions we might talk about, you know, Q and A is, you know, what difference does it make if it moves forward? Does it make a difference? And I think it does, but it's gonna be a subtle difference. Right? When does it make a difference? Five years, ten years? These are the next set of questions. So thank you.